So I'll be reading from Luke 2, um, beginning at verse 5 through 25, and then 57 to 66. Listen to the word of God. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah and whose wife Elizabeth was a daughter of Aaron. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and decrees of the Lord. But they had no children because Elizabeth was barren and they were both well along in years. One day while Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as priest before God, he was chosen by lot according to the custom of the priesthood to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And at the hour of the incense offering, the whole congregation was praying outside. Just then, an angel of the Lord appeared to Zechariah, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah heard, saw him, he was startled and gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, because your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you are to give him the name John. He will be a joy and delight to you, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He shall never take wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. Many of the sons of Israel, he will turn back to the Lord their God, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. How can I be sure of this? Zechariah asked the angel. I am an old man and my wife is well along in years. I am Gabriel, replied the angel. I stand in the presence of God and I have been sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And now you will be silent and unable to speak until the day this comes to pass, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled at their proper time. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he took so long in the temple. When he came out and was unable to speak to them, they realized he had seen a vision in the temple. He kept making signs to them, but remained speechless. And when the days of his service were complete, he returned home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion. She declared, the Lord has done this for me. In these days, he has shown me favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. Now I'll skip to verse 57. When the time came for Elizabeth to have her child, she gave birth to a son. Her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown her great mercy and they rejoiced with her. On the eighth day, when they came to circumcise the child, they were going to name him after his father, Zechariah. But his mother replied, no, he shall be called John. They said to her, there is no one among your relatives who bears this name. So they made signs to his father to find out what he wanted to name the child. Zechariah asked for a tablet and wrote, his name is John. And they were all amazed. Immediately, Zechariah's mouth was opened and his tongue was released, and he began to speak, praising God. All their neighbors were filled with awe, and the people throughout the hill country of Judea were talking about these events. And all who heard this wondered in their hearts and asked, 
What then will become of this child? For the Lord's hand was with him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. There are some contextual items for us to to understand, to to get a better grasp of what's happening in in this passage. So there's a geopolitical context that's important for us to know. So the Romans had conquered Jerusalem in 63 BC, and that was probably not too far from either side of the year that Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth were born. It's therefore likely that both Zechariah and Elizabeth had known nothing but unwelcome Roman occupation for their entire lifetimes in their homeland. The Romans exacted tribute from Zechariah's people. Roman soldiers were known to extort monies from the people, the Palestinian citizens. And they had Roman law, Roman civil law, juxtaposed with Jewish biblical moral and ceremonial law. The relationship was at best adversarial, antagonistic. Zechariah was familiar with the people's frustration, the angst, their resentment, their cynicism, which he may have shared himself. Now, if you think of a current context like this, Ukraine, would, you wouldn't have to go far there. Perhaps in the Tigray region of Ethiopia, many other places around the world, as well as other geopolitical um, situations that would cause people to have angst and fear and resentment and cynicism. There's another thing for us to consider is the vocational, the vocational uh, care and personal character of Zechariah. Vocationally speaking, both Zechariah and Elizabeth were descended from a priestly line. As a result, or at least related, uh, both of them earnestly sought to live faithfully according to the will and the ways of God as recorded in the Old Testament. And then there's the situation that Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth were in. According to Luke, and he didn't mince any words here, he said they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive. And they were both very old. When a couple was unable to conceive a child together in this day, the default assumption was that the woman was infertile. A woman who could not bear a child for her husband, especially a male heir, was brought to shame. She was humiliated. People would have speculated, and and, and certainly in a Jewish context, they would have speculated that she may have done something, some misdeed to cause God to punish her not to be able to have children. So Zechariah had to watch his wife Elizabeth endure this anguish, this shame, this humiliation, over and above the grief that she more than likely felt and the disappointment accompanying her unfulfilled desires and natural will to be a mom. The weight of Zechariah knowing that if he had died before Elizabeth without a son, There was no natural advocate to provide for her materially 
and emotionally. And no doubt, Zechariah himself personally grieved and was disappointed by his own dashed hopes of fatherhood. And yet, as the text has said, he and Elizabeth pursued God in God's ways. We can see Zechariah as a kind of everyman, albeit one who seeks to live according to God's will and ways. He's a finite man with hopes and dreams shaped by his Jewish faith. He's trying to live with integrity in a broken, decaying, and dying world. He's living under Roman occupation. He knew the brokenness of the world in a societal, a kind of communal uh, level. He was aware and possibly shared in Israel's frustration and angst and anger. And he also experienced the brokenness of the world in a deeply personal way. As an inheritor of the covenant God had made with Abraham to make Israel a populous nation, yet with no child to carry on his family name and be part of that covenant promise of God. And then one day, while this every man is performing a special priestly task in the Jerusalem temple, he experiences a highly unusual, not every man event. And this is an appearance of an angel that God had sent to bring Zechariah good news. Gabriel, this angel, assured Zechariah that God had heard his prayers. And not only that, God had heard his prayers and answered them in the affirmative. Right? We can say, we, we often hear it in, 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 the, in our conversation, in our, in our world, in our culture, that God is said to have answered our prayers if God answers the way we want. Right? And that is what happened here. But God answers all prayers, and sometimes the answer is no or not now. Right? But in this case, God said, arousing yes, you're going to have a son. Gabriel revealed God's promise and his fulfillment that Zechariah would become a father and Elizabeth a mother, despite their being very old. And at the same time, Zechariah was startled and gripped with fear. Gabriel offered words of comfort. Now, Ian had alluded to you know, God showing up here this morning. And it seems... A little bit ironic, if not comical, that the Zechariah should be in one of the inner sanctums of the temple. There's only one more place he can go is the Holy of Holies. But he's here beside the altar, in front of the altar, lighting the incense, right? Where he and other priests would offer sacrifices for the people or on the people's behalf. You might think that he would expect to encounter God there. And yet he does. And he's afraid and surprised. So that seems like a little bit of humor that we see in the Bible periodically. But Zechariah didn't believe what Gabriel said to him. And as a result, he was made mute. And he was told, you're not going to be able to speak until all of this happens, which will happen in God's good time. Now, what? so here we have this man who has no child, this couple who's very old, no child, and all of a sudden they're promised this child. And then Luke goes down and he writes the characteristics of this child or attributes of this child. So he would be a joy and a delight to Zechariah and Elizabeth. 
which would replace their shame and grief. Many others would rejoice over John. He'd be great in God's sight. God would fill John with the Holy Spirit even before he was born. In the spirit and power of the esteemed Old Testament prophet Elijah, John would go before and point people to Israel's promised Messiah, Jesus Christ. This same John would prepare people for an encounter with God that they had never conceived of. God coming to them in human flesh and bones. And yet still God. He would call people to repentance. All the neighbors would be filled with awe. And everyone would be asking, what then is this child going to be? Luke even narrated, for the Lord's hand was on John. So you see the swing from the shame and the humiliation, disappointment. And now God has taken Elizabeth and Zechariah to this new place. Has not God blessed Zechariah far beyond any dream he could have conceived on his own? And isn't the timing in which God chose to answer Zechariah's prayer, well, a timing only God could conceive, right? After Elizabeth gave birth to this boy, amid the confusion of what they should name him, like the neighbors were saying, no, you got to call him Zechariah because that's the tradition here. He's named after the father. Elizabeth says, no, he should be John. So he's given a tablet and he writes down very directly, his name is John. And then Zechariah, who hadn't been able to speak for nine months, began to speak and praised God. Luke then said that Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit. And he prophesied what is now called Zechariah's song. So I'll read now from Luke 2, beginning at verse 67. Now this passage is what it has a name, Zechariah's song, also known as the Benedictus. So this is the Latin word from the Latin translation of the Bible for the first word in this passage, blessed, just in the same way that the Magnificat, uh, Mary's song, is Latin for the first word in that one. So, from Luke 2, beginning at verse 67. Then his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has visited and redeemed his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant, David. He spoke through his holy prophets, those of ages past, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. The oath he swore to our father Abraham to grant us deliverance from hostile hands that we may serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our lives. And you, child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give to his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of God, by which the dawn will visit us from on high, 
to shine on those who live in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the path of peace. So Zechariah began by praising the Lord, the God of Israel, because he's come to his people, redeemed them. And then he pointed out why God was worthy of praise. Now, a number of things stand out from Zechariah's song of praise to God. He consistently spoke not in personal terms or individual terms, but he constantly used the term us in our, putting himself with the nation of Israel, seeing that God is coming to the people as a nation, as a community of people. This God who related to Israel in an intimate way of love and wanted to relate to them and have a relationship with them for all eternity. Zechariah was not a lone actor, but part of a community, just as we are not lone actors as members of the body of Christ, but we're part of that body, a church, a community. Zechariah repeatedly called through the memory of Scripture the memory that scripture provides of God's actions in the past to save and rescue Israel from its enemies and to have mercy on Israel. God's reference to God's rescuing Israel from its enemies, especially to enable us to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. That points to Moses appealing to Pharaoh, let my people go so we can go out into the desert and worship God. And that Pharaoh was part of a superpower, an oppressive superpower parallel, we can say, to the Roman Empire. Zechariah said that God would show mercy to Israel's ancestors. Well, how could that happen? Well, he's talking about people who may have suffered or died at the hands of Israel's enemies. God would do this by honoring, faithfully fulfilling God's unilateral, unconditional covenant promises that God had made to God's people in the past. Zechariah brings forth a couple of these promises. He brings forth Abraham's promise, in which God promised to make Israel into a great nation, a highly populated nation. He promised Israel a land that they would inherit from God. And he promised to bless the people of Israel such that they would be a blessing to all people on earth. Zechariah's mention of Abraham prompts one to think that it had to have crossed Zechariah's mind that God had done for him exactly what God had done for Abraham and Sarah. Right? Sarah bore a child at age 90. And here God is repeating this with Zechariah and Elizabeth. And then he also mentions the covenant that God had made with David, in which God promised that a king from the line of Israel's greatest king, David, would reign in truth and righteousness and justice without opposition for all eternity. He's pointing there to Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ as well is the same one through whom all the nations would be blessed, as referred to in that covenant with Abraham. Zechariah testified that the words spoken by the prophets whom God had sent long ago were true in coming to fruition. So we're talking about prophets who, 
who had said, listen, you're going to come back from exile. The exile that you suffered because you walked away from God. God let you go away or sent you away and said, I'm not going to abandon you. Come back. Come home. I will bring you home. These prophets' words were true. They were encouraging. Zechariah's prophecy recognized his son John as an active participant in the outflowing of God's mercy. John would prepare the way for the ministry of Jesus Christ by calling people to turn toward God and away from their self-centered ways. To repent because the reign of God is at hand. He would point people to Jesus Christ who would tell the people they could be forgiven by trusting in him. So what should we take away from Zechariah's story? His story illustrates God's relentless determination to free us from all that keeps us from being fully alive and freeing us for life-giving relationship with God in Christ and with one another. Zechariah's story shows the lengths to which God will go to set aside and call a people to enjoy intimate, loving relationship with God for all eternity. Zechariah's song connects the dots of God's gracious promises to be God to and for us, from God's covenant with Abraham to, to God's covenant with David, to Moses, to the prophets. And God's provision of a child to Zechariah and Elizabeth sets them squarely within this story. God used Zechariah's son John to allow the continued unfolding of God's plan to rescue humanity from our propensity to go our own way. So we can take away from this as well that God has a plan and is on the move unfolding it. I had a plan early in my life, maybe the same age as some of you, maybe you think I'm very old too right now, but when I graduated from college, or as I was anticipating uh, graduating from college, I had a pretty sure plan of what I wanted to do. So at the time, uh, I had a license in hand as a third mate on a US merchant vessel of unlimited tons, all oceans of the world, steam or motor vessels. So I was a deck officer. And my plan was to sail on this license at sea, get my license to be a captain of a ship as soon as I could. I was projecting five years. Um, that's at about six months to sea a year. And the five years was ambitious, but I was, at that age, very ambitious. I would then, after I had my captain's license, sail on it briefly and then go ashore get into the best business school I could be admitted to and begin a shoreside career. Relationally speaking, I had a plan as well. My plan was probably after I returned from sea or business school, I would uh, find someone to marry, um, settle down, have children, and move on in that direction. And almost immediately upon graduation, all of that fell to pieces. And it was somewhat of a crisis for me because um, I really had my heart set on this. And when I graduated, the maritime industry was in its worst recession ever. So there were no jobs. The only jobs one could get was chipping paint on the deck of a ship. 
And as somebody who had studied hard to be an officer, I wasn't really keen to do this and spend my time that way. And so God had another plan, a script for which I had never imagined. I ended up ashore from the beginning, just doing uh, time in the Naval Reserve that I owed the government for the scholarship they had given me. And um, I spent time in pharmaceuticals, in marketing, and ultimately in advertising. And um, I never would have predicted this would be the plan for my life. I had visions of being married probably in my mid to late 20s. That didn't happen. 30, 35, 40, 45, 50. And for me, this was really hard because I had this plan and it was lonely and it was a difficult time. And yet, I look at having met Carrie and been married at 51, for me, you can ask her how old she was, um, I can't imagine, I can't imagine what life would be like without her. And it was hard to wait. So just as it was hard for Elizabeth and Zechariah to wait to have that child, so was it. But God was with me in that. Now, the difference, though, is that Elizabeth and Zechariah were faithful during that time of waiting, that patient time. They were faithful to God to follow God. I was mostly, but I had my times, particularly on the relational side, where I would just throw up my hands and say, okay, I'm really just tired of praying, God. You know, I'll just leave it to you, but I don't want to talk about this anymore. But Elizabeth and Zechariah didn't do that. So the point here, the takeaway here, is that God does have a plan. And his plan is invariably, I didn't know, always, better than the one we could devise and often radically different. But I would say, even for my part, hugely satisfying. Have you ever seen a cat, a mother cat, pick up a kitten with her mouth and kind of move the cat around the room? I've seen that happen before and and I, at my first time I saw it, I was like, oh, gosh, that looks really painful. I mean, you know, she's biting the neck of the cat. And I learned that, no, that's not painful for the cat at all. It's natural. It's what they do. And that's kind of the metaphor that I use for how I feel God in my life, is a kind of surrender where God sinks his teeth into my neck. I don't feel a thing, but God moves me and puts me in the place where God wants me to be, where it's best for me to be. The reality, at the same time, is that every single one of us is going to die with unmet expectations. And yet, life in Christ will exceed our wildest expectations. And he'll be with us here and now, always. In this world, too, sometimes it seems as if the darkness is swallowing the light. Right? I mean, it feels that way to me. You can turn on the news and hear what's happening, you know, last February, January 6th. Pick, pick you know, whatever's in the news today. And it just feels like evil is winning out over good. And this can be discouraging. A lot of the text here, particularly in the Benedictus today, was of Zechariah remembering of his memory of God's grace and faithfulness in the past. Right? that helped to sustain him going forward 
through those difficult times, through living through the Roman occupation, living through a time when his wife was barren or he was infertile, who knows, right? So that's in play as well. It gives me encouragement to see the church at work. So a couple of Saturday nights ago, if we we think of the world falling apart, I stood in a room where people from many nations of the world were gathered for a Christmas celebration. And these people from so many nations sang Silent Night. People from Nigeria, Chad, Egypt, China, Hong Kong, um, Tajikistan, Russia, Germany, all over the world. And together, this room full of people sang Silent Night in their own language at the same time. That was so encouraging. That helped me see the light of the nations being lifted up, right? And the world unifying around this Christ. We also have the benefit of knowing how the story ends. It doesn't stop at Luke 2, right? So Jesus comes and he ministers to people and he teaches them. He feeds the hungry, he clothes the naked, he speaks truth to power, he exposes hypocrisy. He suffers and dies on a cross for humanity. And yet, the Roman Empire or the Jewish religious hierarchy doesn't have the last word. God raises him from the dead and promises to do the same for all who would follow this Jesus. God is determined to complete God's plan to be an intimate, loving relationship with a righteous and holy people who worship God in complete freedom. In Washington, D.C., on the National Archives building, there's a sculpture just outside that building. It's a sculpture of a woman. And it's alternatively um, named, I forgot the names, we'll forget that, but there's an inscription beneath that statue. And the woman is sitting there, and she's holding a book. She has a hand on, uh, on top of the open book, and another hand is resting above. And the inscription is, what is past is prologue. Now, as biblical as this may sound, it's not. It's an inscription from Shakespeare, from his play, The Tempest, Act 2, Scene 1. And one interpretation of this phrase, what is past is prologue, is that past events influence present and future events such that they are the pathway or building blocks for the unfolding of an event of even greater significance. So we can see these events accounted for in this text today as a prologue to Jesus coming, dying, rising. And as we we approach Advent, anticipating, celebrating that he already came in the past. And then at the same time, we look forward to his coming again one day in the future. So there's a story of Supreme Court Justice William O. Douglas riding in a taxi cab in Washington past the National Archives building. So he sees this inscription, what is past in prologue. 
And he says to the cab driver, hey, what do you think that means? And like cabbies probably everywhere, the guy had a ready answer. He said, it means you ain't seen nothing yet. And so too with what we heard from Zechariah today. Amen.